Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Chinese State Counselor and Defense Minister General Wei Fang and U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin held their first face-to-face meeting in Singapore earlier today. How did it go? Well, for insight, let's start the show the way we always do. It's Friday, so our first guest is a widely acclaimed speaker, writer, journalist, and political analyst. He has traveled extensively in the Middle East and Latin America. His latest book is entitled Kamala Harris and the Future of America, an essay in three parts. Caleb Moppin, as always, Caleb, welcome back. Sure. Glad to be here, as always. General Wei Fang, and I hope I pronounced it correctly, says, quote, if anyone dares to split Taiwan from China, the Chinese army will definitely not hesitate to start a war, no matter the cost. He said, stressed that Taiwan is China's Taiwan. Using Taiwan to contain China will never prevail. And Garland and I discussed yesterday whether or not Austin would employ the Tony Blinken method of diplomacy with China that Blinken tried to employ in Anchorage. And, you know, that one that works so well. Caleb, this to me is incredibly strong language, especially when you take into account it's coming from China. Your thoughts? Well, I think the context of this needs to be understood because a lot of Americans, they hear about this and they think, oh, there's this poor little island called Taiwan and then there's big China and China is just being authoritarian and kicking them around and saying they own the island. They they think maybe this is like what was done to Hawaii by the United States or this is like, you know, this is like some kind of classic colonialism thing. That's not the situation at all. Right. You have to understand the majority of people on the island of Taiwan overwhelmingly consider themselves to be Chinese. And in fact, you know, the name of the government on Taiwan is not Taiwan. It doesn't have the name Taiwan in it. It's the Republic of China. Right. And that, that Taiwan was considered to be part of China. Uh, and what happened was you had the Chinese Revolution in 1949, where the Communist Party uh, took power on the mainland. And so the KMT, the Nationalist Party, fled to Taiwan. And for a long time, the United States and the United Nations recognized the government on Taiwan as being the representative of all of China. Um, Now, as things changed in the 1970s, the United States kind of shifted and recognized the government on the mainland and withdrew recognition from the government on Taiwan. Um, But the Communist Party in China, one of the main sources of their credibility is that they have brought China together. They have created one China. And that the way China was kept poor during what they call the centuries of humiliation, where the British dominated China's economy, where you had the opium wars, where you had millions of Chinese people in in extreme poverty and their ability to build up their own industries was restricted. And you had the flow of narcotics into China, turning, turning people into addicts. And you had famines every year where hundreds of thousands of people would die. You know, all part of the way China was kept in that horrendous state of poverty Part of the way they did that uh, was by playing different regions against each other, by dividing it, by not having a strong central government, 
uh, by having warlords in one region who wouldn't listen to warlords or a government based in another region. And so the Communist Party of China is held in great esteem and compared to the Qing Dynasty and other leaders in China's history because they have created one China. And they have had to fight to create one China. Right after the Chinese Revolution uh, in the 1950s, you had the Tibet Civil War, where the U.S. government, you know, airdropped all kinds of Tibetan separatist fighters into Tibet. And at least half a million people died in the Tibet Civil War. And then you had the Korean War on the Korean Peninsula, where China saw all, you know, right on their border with Korea, they saw hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops flowing in and a military police action against one of their communist allies, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Um, and, and China has had to fight and made great sacrifices in order to maintain one China. So in order for the Chinese Communist Party to hold on to their credibility and, and show to the Chinese population that they have the right to rule, that they are responsible, that they're getting the job done, that they, that they are worth keeping in power, they need to show that they are maintaining one China. And that, that, that kind of, you know, the centuries of humiliation and the division uh, that, that came, you know, with, with, you know, foreign domination and being fractured, that that won't come back. And I think they point to a more recent example, the fall of the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union, when they were together, the economy was much better. But in the 90s, when all the countries of the former Soviet Union split apart, it devastated that whole region. And so they say, we're not going to allow that to happen. There will be one China. There'll be Tibet as part of China. There'll be uh, the Uyghur regions as part of China. There'll be Hong Kong as part of China. There'll be Taiwan as part of China. So any attempt on the part of the United States to undermine that, if the United States looks like it's trying to make Taiwan declare itself to not be China, uh, China will have to respond very dramatically. And I feel like part of U.S. strategy at this time is to try and create a situation where the Chinese Communist Party feels they have no choice but to militarily intervene, at which point the United States can do what they've done to Russia and say, oh, my God, they're an aggressor. They're attacking, you know, they're attacking a smaller nation. Well, Tibet is part of China. The government on Taiwan is the Republic of China. It's not recognized by the United States. This is part of the strategy is they want to create a situation where China feels it has no choice but to intervene. And I think China is making clear, you know, if you really want to go there, United States, we'll go there, but you may not like the results. And, uh, you know, the, the general held firm and Lloyd Austin, you know, did his job. He, he did what he was supposed to do. Uh, I don't think it, it went as badly as it's gone for Blinken in Anchorage and elsewhere, but uh, that's what happened. And we shouldn't be surprised that China gave a dramatic response. Uh, the head of the United Nations Atomic Energy Watchdog said Thursday that Iran is moving 27, removing 27 cameras used by the agency to monitor the country's nuclear sites. Um, the U.S. Uh, State Department and the IAEA are all up in arms of it. But, Caleb, my understanding is that, that Iran is not required to do that, and they were doing it voluntarily. And now that the U.S. hasn't been cooperative, the U.N. hasn't been cooperative, they said we're no longer going to do this voluntarily. So what's the problem with that? If I'm right, your thoughts on that, Caleb? Let me just quickly read the quote from the head of the Atomic Energy Organization of Iran to support your point, Garland. Unfortunately, without considering that the Islamic Republic of Iran's cooperation has been out of goodwill, the agency has not only not been grateful for it, but has also, in a way, considered it, considered it Iran's duty, end quote. Go ahead, Caleb. 
Sure. Iran is a signatory of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, meaning that they have agreed to never develop nuclear weapons. And they have welcomed the International Atomic Energy Agency into Iran to monitor all their sites to make sure they're not doing that. And not once have they ever been caught doing anything uh, that would be moving toward getting a nuclear weapon. They have pursued peaceful nuclear energy. All the peaceful nuclear energy sites have been monitored. And then Iran signed the nuclear deal. Uh, the nuclear deal of the Obama administration that basically completely dismantled almost all of their peaceful nuclear energy program. And they then also welcomed the International Atomic Energy Agency to monitor them doing that. So, you know, Iran has allowed themselves to be monitored. They've followed the nonproliferation treaty. And then they followed a very big, you know, nuclear deal in which they dismantled something that the nuclear deal itself said they had the right to do, which is pursue peaceful nuclear energy. So Iran made huge concessions after huge concessions. And then after they'd made all these huge concessions, uh, Israel continued to put out this false propaganda claiming they were developing nuclear weapons without any evidence. And then on top of that, they made the huge concessions and, and still the USA imposed more sanctions on them. And then Trump came in and murdered Qasem Soleimani uh, and escalated hostility toward Iran's allies in the region. And so Iran is saying, look, you know, uh, now Biden's in and you said Trump was a fluke and that Trump doesn't represent the United States. And so we're willing to go back to the table. And Biden's been in office for well over a year and nothing has happened. So Iran is saying, OK, we're turning the cameras off. You know, we've set up these cameras as a favor to you. We're not required to have these cameras here. And uh, this is this is something we can do. We've been giving and giving and giving and making concession after concession. And in response to our concessions, we haven't gotten rewards from the United States. We haven't gotten help from the United States. We got a little bit of our money back that you froze during the revolution. But other than that, we haven't really gotten much from it. Uh, you know, so, you know, this favor that we do, we set up these cameras, uh, we're going to get rid of these cameras. Um, and it, it really shows you how one-sided the conversation in the United States about these kind of issues really is. Um, because uh, at the end of the day, the way they talk about this, uh, they, they don't seem to acknowledge all of the compliance we've seen from Iran. And, and, you know, it doesn't matter. They continue to keep this narrative that Iran is on the brink of getting a nuke so they can blow up New York City or something. They continue to keep this narrative alive when it doesn't have any basis in fact. You know, one of the things that struck me when uh, when you and I were in Iran and we traveled extensively throughout the country, when I would just be standing talking to folks, talking to students, they were always asking me, can they trust the United States? The sense that I got from the meetings that you and I were in, from my lectures at different universities and interacting with students and other professors, they were always giving me the impression they want this to work. They want to reestablish ties. They want to have a good relationship. But they were asking me, could they trust us? And this was during the Obama administration. And so this whole Western, it's almost as though the West, as to your point, is continuing to look for excuses and Western media is complicit in the fraud. Indeed. And it seems like there are uh, there's really a conflict of interest. I mean, I think that the Obama administration 
they were hoping to, you know, you know, to do something like, you know, with the Soviet Union. They were hoping to court the moderates and the reformers in the Iranian government mm-hmm. um, and gradually kind of lure them into the U.S. camp and introduce more reforms and roll back that, the power of the hardliners, increase American influence among the young people. Youth are the overwhelming majority of the population of Iran. And most Iranians were born after the revolution. And youth in Iran tend to be much more sympathetic to the United States than their parents are because of what their parents went through and, and social media and such. And that was what the Obama administration was trying to do. They had, you know, this kind of long-term strategy to just gradually roll back the revolution. Whereas Trump and his buddy Netanyahu, uh, they see a lot of short-term gain in selling weapons throughout that region, a lot of short-term gain in escalating and polarizing the Arab world. Are you with the Saudis? Are you with Iran? Uh, you know, playing up the Iranian threat. And so the last thing that they would ever want is the United States and Iran to, to start to get to be more friendly and American influence in Iran to increase because that would that would you know cut into the way that they're making a lot of money. Netanyahu's entire credibility and his political career is based on, oh, my God, the Iranians are aligned with Hamas and they're coming to get us. And that's why we need, you know, a, a fanatical hardline Israeli leader. Well, if Iran softens up, uh, then his political career is over. And so. This was a conflict of interest, and there's a lot of people who have a lot to gain from conflict with Iran who just weren't going to go along with this kind of Brzezinski, Eastern establishment, soft power strategy. And it looks to me like uh, the hardliners, uh, the the military brat, the Reaganite element uh, has kind of prevailed. Um, And what I'm shocked by is how much, I mean, even now, right, they're just now getting rid of these cameras. I mean, after they murdered Qasem Soleimani, I mean, if the hardliners really had power in Iran, they could have gone all in and completely gotten rid of this. Uh, but they haven't, right? And it shows you how powerful the reformist element in Iran really is. Um, you know, that pro-American reformist element in Iran has a lot of power beneath the surface because the fact that Iran has moved so slowly in the aftermath of the Trump administration and the aftermath of Biden taking office and not changing anything, it shows you that there is a very, very big pro-U.S. element within the Islamic Republic, but they're con- consistently being proven wrong and their claims that we can support the United States. Rouhani got elected saying that, look, uh, you know, I'll get in there, I'll negotiate with the United States and things will get better. And things in Iran, in terms of the economy, have gotten worse. In terms of national humiliation, have gotten worse. I mean, the hardliners are being disproved and discredited, uh, or I'm sorry, the moderates are being disproved and discredited at every turn, but yet they still seem to have a lot of power. And that shows you, uh, you know, it shows you how much, uh, how committed and how influential the, the, the militarist faction in the United States really is, that they are able to, to kind of prevent any kind of soft power you know, influence in the, of the United States and Iran. And I think that's what's going on here. And it's, it's interesting to look at as an analyst, but at the end of the day, uh, the hardliners in Iran have been proven correct uh, when they say the United States is not trustworthy, when they say that uh, the United States will stab them in the back, when they say that the you know, the anti-imperialist and anti-capitalist goals and, and ideals of the Islamic revolution must be held on to and not watered down. They're being proven correct by the actions of the United States. And just really quickly, you made a very, very important point that people cannot miss or gloss over, and that is Iran didn't shut off all of the cameras. They only shut off 27. There's something like 80 percent of the cameras, which I think are all of the cameras that are required to be left on with the IAEA agreement. Those cameras are on. The cameras that they voluntarily put up are the ones that they shut down. I think that's a very important point. 
Here's, here's another important uh, thing we'd like to get you to touch base on, and uh, I'm going to put two things together. First of all, President Nicolas Maduro arrived in Tehran today, and he stated the following, Venezuela and Iran have a common goal of fighting colonialism, imperialism, and racism. At the same time, the infamous summit of some of the Americas turned into a debacle and shut down. Your thoughts on the summit of, of, of Americas, and, and you can add the other part about Iran, Venezuela, uh, Nicolas. Maduro? Well, sure. Um, you know, I mean, Venezuela and Iran have been very friendly. That goes back to Hugo Chavez and Ahmadinejad. And and they're both oil-producing states that are exporting oil on the international markets in competition with, with Wall Street in London. And that's why they're being targeted. Um, and what's also interesting is neither of them are really, they're not Marxist-Leninist communist states like the Soviet Union was. You know, Nicolas Maduro is Roman Catholic, and Bolivarian socialism, it draws from Christianity, it draws from the indigenous traditions, it also draws from Marxism, and, and the communists and, and Marxist-Leninists are a big current among the Bolivarians, but they're not the main current. And that it's a, a kind of eclectic anti-capitalism specifically designed for Venezuela. And you can say the same thing about Iran, that the Islamic Revolution is not Marxist in any conceivable way. They are very clear. They do not believe in Marxism. It's illegal to have a communist party in Iran. Uh, but they're against capitalism, and they, in their Iranian universities and schools, they teach an analysis that is very similar to Lenin's understanding of imperialism. And they are, you know, they say, they say not capitalism but Islam, and they have, you know, nationalized their oil resources and are using their oil to rebuild a, a kind of a, a center, a state-run economy uh, that has raised millions of people up out of poverty. And Iran and Venezuela are both an example of of the anti-capitalism and anti-imperialism of our time. The Cold War is over, the Soviet Union is never coming back, but they are both kind of, you know, they're from the tradition of anti-colonial and anti-imperialist movements, and they've built up an independent state, you know, designed for their unique conditions of their countries. And when, you know, when Maduro condemned racism, that's, you know, one thing that I, I'm sure you saw, Dr. Wilmerlian, when we were there, was the, the huge admiration the Iranians have for Malcolm X, yes. uh, for the Black Panthers, for the yes. Black Freedom Struggle. I mean, that was huge. Yes. And it's the same in Venezuela. Yeah. In fact, one of the things that I, I was in this, uh, in, in a number of meetings with their cultural minister, we spent hours talking about black history. And one of the things that was said to me was, if the, if the Panthers had been Muslim, you all wouldn't be having the fights you're having now. <laughs> I said, hold up, partner. We got it. <laughs> But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, that, that was great. Um, <laughs> I did want to ask you about um, Nicaragua authorizing redeployment of Russian military forces. Your thoughts? Well, I mean, we shall see what comes of that. I mean, R Nicaragua has said that they will allow it. Now, if there were to actually be Russian military forces deployed in Nicaragua, the United States would certainly not be happy of that, about that. We could see an escalation in the region. Um, but this is Nicaragua making a gesture to the United States. The United States doesn't recognize their election results, has imposed sanctions on them, barred them from the summit of the Americas. So I think this is Nicaragua saying, OK, uh, you're going you're gonna to be unfriendly to us. We'll get, we'll get more friendly to one of your one of your enemies right now. And I think this is an important political gesture. Uh, we can hope it doesn't escalate further, but it may. What about Russia's foreign ministry spokeswoman, Maria Zakharova, saying that this is routine, that they do it twice a year? And also, if South Korea and the U.S. staged their first combined military exercises involving American aircraft carriers, 
uh, in more than four years. The U.S. military is now talking about having planned exercises with Finland and and Sweden as NATO's members consider what they're going to do. So if the United States can do this all over the world, then, hey, uh, last I checked, Nicaragua is a sovereign nation and, hey, they can party with who they want to party with. Oh, sure. And there's U.S. military bases all across South and Central America. And there's U.S. you know, military-linked operations in Guatemala and Honduras. There's U.S. military bases in Colombia. You know, it's the idea that, you know, that maybe the Russians, you know, might do some joint exercises or something with Nicaragua. At the end of the day, it shouldn't be that shocking to us. Um, but I think, you know, the proximity of Nicaragua to the United States is probably what is causing, you know, this to be kind of alarm bells. And also the current situation with Russia, it makes it more, quote unquote, scandalous. You know, they can point to this and say, ah, oh, you know, you're, right. you know oh, Nicaragua sure. is working with the Russians, right? And that's, you remember, that's what they said in the 1980s. I mean, they made a whole, you know, Hollywood movie, Red Dawn, mm-hmm. uh, to justify, uh, you know, the idea that Reagan had to send guns to Nicaragua to fight the Sandinistas, because if not, the Soviets were going to set up shop there and invade the United States, you know, and that the idea of, oh, the Soviet Union, you know, if, if Nicaragua is socialist, they're going to attack the United States or something. Uh, that's a longstanding propaganda point from the American hardline, you know, military right wing. So I guess this gives them an opportunity to play it up once again. Final question. But isn't what Nicolas Maduro is doing and the United States reaction to it based upon Nicaragua's proximity to the United States, similar to Vladimir Putin's complaint about Ukraine and NATO surrounding his country. Sure. Uh, okay. Nicaragua is one country, whereas it's like if you look at <laughs> on Russia's border, it's, you know, it's, right. it's a lot closer, but it's a lot more. But yeah, yeah. In a, in a way, one could one could see this as tit for tat. OK. Caleb Moppin, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Sure thing. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. And there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Weekly jobless claims hit 229,000, the highest level since January. Initial jobless claims spiked to their highest level since mid-January last week, despite signs of an otherwise strong employment picture, according to the Labor Department's report from yesterday. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So, as I said, jobless claims for the week ending June 4 totaled 229,000, well ahead of the 210,000 that the Dow Jones estimated. Then they say the four-week moving average of continuing claims, which helps smooth out volatility in the numbers, remained around its lowest level since 1970. Two things. Does it muddy the analysis talking about the 229,000 initial or first-time claims with the moving average of continuing claims? And then the second part of that question is, 
this whole thing about an otherwise strong employment picture, I wonder what picture they're looking at, Dr. Tahid. Well, okay, to, to understand uh, the, the, the difference between initial claims mm-hmm. and continuing claims, initial claims are persons who are, you know, right now uh, have, um, have uh, claimed unemployment benefits because they've been working, they've been laid off, and now they're, they're, they're uh, claiming. Uh, the, the continuing claims, though, takes those persons who are coming on to unemployment and then subtracts those who are coming off of unemployment. And so if persons have been have run out on their unemployment benefits, which is usually 26 weeks, they, they fall off. And so the, the, the fact that the continuing claims is is at its all time low uh, just means could mean that just a lot of people have uh, overrun, uh, you know, timed out on their unemployment benefits and um, uh, are falling off. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're coming off of unemployment because they're, they're they've found jobs. So when they say smooth out volatility, that to me that's a that's a that's not as accurate as a representation as one would think. Yes, that's correct. I okay, mean, the, you have to know what's causing that average exactly. uh, as well. Mm-hmm. And my other question: the strong employment picture. Are they looking at the same photograph I'm looking at? What they're looking at is the unemployment rate, and we've talked about this for mm-hmm. a while. The unemployment rate, uh, as it's used now, is not really representative of how well people are doing in their employment. When the unemployment rate was based mostly on, or, or when employment was based mostly on full-time employment, then the unemployment rate meant, meant that people didn't have jobs at all. But now, uh, but you know, uh, the unemployment to be unemployed doesn't mean you ha- don't have a full time job. It means that you've uh, 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 made a dollar in the last week. You haven't worked, yeah. You haven't worked in, in the last two weeks. Yeah. Oh. You haven't made any income in the last two weeks. And so, if you're working a part time job, you're working a couple hours a week. You're working for Uber or DoorDash. You are employed, even though you would like to work full time. Uh, you are not unemployed. And so that 3.6% unemployment rate hides a lot of, unem- of, of underemployment and, and part-time work. Uh, those statistics don't mean what they used to mean, and so we need to adjust for that. Yeah, we've, I've, I've often heard it. I'm sure you've heard it said. They, uh, uh, the slaves on the plantation had full employment. <laughs> You know, but it did, but the but the benefits when pay weren't all that great. You know, I'm, let me throw this at you too. Um, the new spokesman for uh, uh, the Biden White House, her last, for, uh, I think it's Corrine Jean Pierre, right? And she recently was talking. They were asking her questions, and she said, "What we're trying to say, what I'm trying to say to you, is that the economy is in a better place than it has been historically." And you know, she goes on to say, when they ask her about lowering prices, she says, we leave that piece to the Federal Reserve, that they have the monetary policies to deal with the best, to have the best tools to make sure that we bring down inflation. Uh, two things about that. Number one, I mean, it, to say that we're in a better place is to cherry pick, which is, I guess, what we're talking about, is to cherry pick statistics and to imply that the um, Federal Reserve has the best tools. What tool, tools do they have and what can they do? What are their options? Okay. Here? Second question, the, uh, the, uh, the Federal Reserve has one tool, which is to increase interest rates uh, to, to deal with inflation. Uh, but the problem with increasing interest rates, I mean, if it's intended to create this a scenario where demand for products goes down, people are spending more money, 
uh, let's say, um, for housing or, or, or autos, and if the, if the rate of borrowing goes up, then that slows the economy down. Now, that's fine if your inflation is caused by too much demand. If your inflation is caused by too little supply, increasing the interest rate will not only uh, decrease demand, but will also decrease supply because businesses will have to borrow uh, at a higher rate in order to increase supply. And so the, the tool that the Federal Reserve has, which is inc- to increase interest rates, is not the tool that's needed to address the, the problems in the economy this time. Uh, it's not the Federal Reserve. It's the federal government, the Treasury, that has the tools to address uh, shortcoming supply. There's a piece in Common Dreams. The Peterson billionaire clique is back for your Social Security. And we discussed this yesterday. And it's it's a long article. It it can be a kind of uh, the point I want to focus in on this particular piece is the discussion now about Social Security. There's been an ongoing move for a number of years to privatize Social Security. And there's also been this narrative about Social Security being unstable and going under. And I'd like for you to talk about the importance of the Social Security program and where we are with all of, with the attempts to privatize it and the discussion of its solvency. Okay, first of all, the Social Security program is extremely stable. It is much more stable than Wall Street. Uh, Wall Street is, is, is declining right now because of, um, of, of inflation. And so when the, when the general economy uh, goes up, maybe Wall Street goes up. When the general economy goes down, uh, it, uh, Wall Street uh, goes down. Uh, but Social Security continues on paying its benefits as it should. So it has been extremely stable. Uh, the idea that the Social Security uh, can, can go um, insolvent is a ridiculous notion because the Social Security is buoyed by the ability of the federal government to create payments into the Social Security system. And since the federal government is, is the entity that can create dollars, there's no way for the federal government to go insolvent. Uh, Another thing, you know, Social Security has been called uh, an entitlement program. Uh, This this language, I I was, uh, you know, uh, uh, when 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 the Obama administration began to use this 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 language of an entitlement, uh, comparing Social Security essentially to a welfare program, Mm -hmm. it it showed that certainly the Obama administration had bought into the idea of privatizing Social Security which was something that came up in the Clinton administration, was attempted by the Bush second administration, but, but failed. But this idea of privatizing Social Security to turn your, your Social Security funds over to private uh, finance is what, is what driving, is driving this process of, of, uh, of privatization of Social Security. Wait, let me jump in. Let me jump in real quick and ask you something, because so this idea came under Clinton. So did that come under his reinventing government as we know it scheme? Yes, yes, uh, yes, absolutely. It came. It came because the Clinton administration was focused on on decreasing the deficit and actually paying down the the, the federal government debt. And so the focus was well, began to, to to go on Social Security to to reduce the payments uh, into Social Security and privatization, of course, would, would reduce those payments to nothing. And so, yes, this was part of, in, in the Clinton reinventing government. 
to create a, a surplus for uh, to, p- to pay down the debt. Now that surplus, uh, which was uh, in the last years of the Clinton administration, '98 and so forth, ended up in a recession when when George Bush, uh, the, the second Bush, uh, took office. Uh, we, uh, the, that, that's a surplus that the Clinton administration created caused the recession in 2001. And, and so, you know, the, this idea of that, the, that the private sector can do better than the public sector in something like Social Security is, is, what's, is what uh, the, the institutes like the Peterson uh, Institute and so forth are trying to convince the public that, it, that, that um, is, is, is the case. But we should be very, very wary of private finance, hmm. uh, pu- uh, you know, financing uh, public insurance. And that's what Social Security is. It's not an entitlement. You pay your premiums into the system. And as a result of paying those premiums, you get a return when you retire. Washington Post has an interesting article. When a 1970s-style stag, why a 1970s-style stagflation crisis would hit the world's poor hard. When it comes to the global economy, the near future looks increasingly bleak. But while rich countries like the U.S. and Britain fret about slowing growth and growth and rising prices, prices, if stagflation makes its long-dreaded return, it will be poorer nations to get the worst of it. I don't think there's an if anymore. But I do think the United States and Europe could in a way get it worse, and I mean as far as social uprisings, because when people have a higher standard of living and the bottom falls out, they are not going to be happy. Anyway, your thoughts on all of that, Dr. Dr. Tawheed? Well, what poor countries will, will have to do is, uh, as, their, as their economy begins to shrink, uh, is one, to stop exporting the foodstuff to commodities that they produce in order to have food for their citizens. They will do that. And so that would alleviate some of the, fam- uh, the famine that, that might be coming. Uh, they, they must also uh, and will begin to, to, to arrange uh, um, supply chains with, with Russia, uh, which is a big supplier of commodities like wheat and, and, and cooking oil and other kinds of things. Uh, they'll do that. What, uh, what, what poor countries also will begin to do is default on their loans to uh, international finance and the IMF because they won't be selling their commodities out into the market to get dollars to pay off their loans. Uh, they'll be using those commodities for home, and they won't have that money to pay those debts. And if they can't pay those debts, they, they won't pay those debts. And so, and so poor countries are, are going to be hit, uh, but the, 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 the Western countries are really more interested in the fact that those poor countries won't be able to pay off their loans. And uh, so, you know, poor countries will, will, will be affected. Uh, Europe will be fa- affected more than the U.S., and uh, that also creates a, a decision for European countries as to whether or not they uh, continue to go with these sanctions against Russia or they look out for the interests of their, of their own citizens. And as, you, as we've said before, you know, change, government change in Europe is much easier than government change in the U.S. because they can have elections at any time. In poor countries, those uh, what we'll see is is uh, uh, social unrest uh, that will occur. But it appears that that uh, poor countries, particularly countries in Africa, for example, are trying to make arrangements with with um, um, uh, Russia and and other producers of of the food stuff that they they would buy from the West in order to to alleviate the famine that that might be coming. That that probably is coming. This story. I found interesting in its first paragraph 
This week, the World Bank and the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development both slashed their estimates for economic growth, citing the ongoing disruption caused by the pandemic and Russia's war in Ukraine. That statement, Russia's war in Ukraine, taken in what I see as an ahistoric context, seems to be blaming Russia for the world's problems. It it does nothing to address how this whole thing started, why this whole thing started. Was the was Joe Biden's ignoring Vladimir Putin's demands a part of all of this? The United States decided to impose sanctions. Sanctions didn't have to be imposed. There were a number of options that could have been taken to avoid this. But that statement by the Washington Post to me seems to be less than accurate journalism. Well, what that what that statement ignores on the economic front is that it is the the West that imposed sanctions on 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 Russia uh, in the hope of crippling the Russian economy. It hasn't done that, but it has certainly caused blowback in uh, economically in in Europe and and some in the U.S. The U.S. will be hurt less. Uh, you know, gas prices will go up less in in the U.S. than they will go up in Europe, and they're going up substantially in the U.S. And so the price of, of gas and oil, particularly heating oil, will go up in Europe. Uh, European countries are looking at uh, at a long cold winter. Uh, they've uh, san- you know they've imposed sanctions on on uh, Russian oil, uh, and uh, but they won't be able to make that up uh, unless they have some 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 oil laundering going on where they can get Russian oil through third third channels. I suspect that's what's going on. But there'll still be a huge increase in the price of, of heating oil and industrial oil running factories and so forth. So the European economies are going to be hurt quite substantially by this. And, uh, you know, recovering from the pandemic is not the reason for this. It is the sanctions against Russia that, that's causing these problems. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, Putin didn't sanction himself. And, and so, um, uh, you know, it's not Putin that's causing these prices uh, to increase. It is the sanctions imposed by Western nations. To your point about the World Bank and the smaller countries that will be defaulting on their loans if, if this proceeds, does that open the door further for the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank? Does this give China an even greater entree to these countries, which at the end of the day means just like the failure of the of the of the sanctions against Russia and the we're going to devalue the, the the ruble and we're going to crush Russia's economy. Does this potentially give China a stronger foothold with countries, smaller countries that, that are going to fall victim to the World Bank? Oh, oh, I think I think it gives them a, a tremendous foothold and leverage. Uh, not only will these countries want to start to 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 become part of the uh, the, the Chinese uh, um, economic sphere, but 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 China has trillions of dollars in in their in their mm-hmm. reserves. Uh, they have enough uh, to to offer deals to these uh, countries that have debt in U.S. dollars uh, that they'll pay those debts. And, and then become um, uh, in terms of some economic arrangement with, with, with China. China could pay these debts off, which would cause a, 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 a flipping of these countries from, from uh, the Western IMF World Bank uh, relationships into the Chinese Development Bank relationships. 
and uh, and and so that that probably would be a good deal for these countries because the Chinese, at least right now, are treating their their economic partners uh, on a better relationship than than the West. In, in the West, these uh, poor countries have to deal in dollars. In uh, in their relationships with China, they can use their own currency, which gives them uh, more of a uh, an even playing field in their economic relationships. So yes, this this gives uh, China a a a, a foothold. Uh, let's say not say a foothold. It gives them a a um, an advantage mm-hmm. in the relationship with poor countries that have to decide whether or not they're going to starve because they can't pay off their debt, or whether they're going to have uh, relationships with China and also with Russia, which is a, a partner in this as well. It seems to me that what we're going to have, the U.S. is $30 trillion in debt, that what we're going to have is some sort of economic recession or depression worldwide. But when we come out of it, the debtor nations like us are going to be second fiddle to the creditor nations such as China that have more money, that when we pull out of it is when we'll see all the collective countries that need help uh, be attracted towards the creditor nations. Uh, we got about one minute. Your thoughts? Well, I'm not, I'm not, I, you know, I, I don't think we should be concerned so much about the the U.S. debt on its own in its, in dollars. That that's not what's going what's going to cause this this um, I guess splitting of the world economy into a dollar economy and a non dollar economy. Uh, you know, what, what what's causing this is is the uh, the, um, um, the 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 obvious uh, maneuvering by the West, by NATO, by the U.S. to um, isolate Russia. And, and what they've done with, with that isolation is, is created a greater partnership between Russia and China uh, with the Eurasian um, agreement and other Asian countries, uh, South American countries and African countries. About 80% of the world's population is not involved in the, in the Russian sanctions. And so the West is only 20% of that relationship the other 80% will become another trading block and will begin to grow um, and, and become more powerful. So we'll have, we'll have a, a, certainly a multipolar economic world as well as a uh, political in terms of military world. Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you, sir. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Washington Post reports Putin likens himself to Peter the Great, links imperial expansion to Ukraine war. Putin, who has often invoked history to stoke nationalist sentiments, compared himself to Peter the Great, the emperor who expanded Russian territory in the 18th century through protracted conflict in remarks that underscored his Rigvantist's ambitions. That's expanding, basically uh, reclaiming and expanding territory. For insight, we turn to our next guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and pleasure to be on the Critical Hour. 
So the Post writes, in an address to Russian entrepreneurs yesterday, the 350th anniversary of Peter the Great's birth, Putin appeared to, now they say, appeared to. Appeared? They just said he did. No, now he appears to link his (laughs) bloody invasion of Ukraine and Russia's imperial past. What was Peter doing, Putin asked Thursday, according to the Associated Press, taking back and reinforcing. That's what he did, and it looks like it fell on us, that to me is a defensive statement, to take back and reinforce as well, not an offensive statement. The comments were widely seen as a reference to Putin's attack on Ukraine, which he has long viewed as part of Russia's sphere of influence. Mark, One of the dominant narratives about this intervention has been that Putin wants to reunite the former Soviet Union. I have not heard him say anything of that sort. Is this story an example of a narrative looking for validation, or is this the correct interpretation of President Putin's remarks? Yeah, um, I do not believe that this is correct interpretation of President Putin's remarks. It is remarkable uh, the differences in the way that the Western press has suddenly chosen to dominantly portray Peter the Great and the meaning that Putin tried to apply to it. Putin was appealing, and, and there's no question that Putin does see Peter the Great as a type of uh, historical role model, right, uh, in in Russian history that he seeks to emulate in some ways. But the ways that he seeks to emulate him, and I think he's completely wrong on this, is that Peter the Great was seen as the czar who opened Russia to a, a window on the West mm-hmm. and tried to make Russia part of Western Europe. And certainly the way that Putin began his presidency back in 2000. I think that's definitely the way Putin saw himself at the time before events, right? He definitely wanted to integrate Russia with the West. He uh, even spoke about Russia joining NATO and was completely rebuffed. Um, And it's, it's a bit ironic because Putin has turned out to be the anti peter Uh, Because of his reactions to Western expansionism, the end result of that process has been a decoupling of Russia with the West. Uh, So I think both the Western interpretation of Putin's remarks are wrong, and I think Putin's uh, idea of emulating Peter the Great are also wrong. He's the anti-Peter, but not exactly in the way that the Western press is trying to portray him. Uh, I wouldn't use the word wrong. I'd use the two words, misleading and deceptive, because you have to add intent to that. Um, However, that being said, um, what's interesting about this story is that they're like, yes, they're using the word imperial empire. Putin wants to be an emperor. He wants to create create the Soviet empire at a time when the United States is saying that the Solomon Islands, which is 7,391 miles from the U.S. coast, is in the U.S.'s fear of influence, and the U.S. has drawn a red line around the Solomon's Islands. The United States is saying that the China cannot have a military base in Cambodia, a country that we were resulting that, that we were uh, responsible for a genocide in. China can't have a military base 
on the like Atlantic side of Africa because that would be a problem with us. But yet Russia has imperial notions. I find that slightly uh, eh, hypocritical. And your thoughts on that, Mark? Yeah, I, I think there is a technical term for this. Uh, it's called psychological projection. Uh, the displacing of one's uh, feelings and intent onto a person, animal, or object. Um, and I think that that is what the U.S. is doing here. I mean, uh, we have to remember that the Russian foreign minister, uh, when talking uh, to uh, his counterpart, uh, uh, Anthony Blinken, recounted that Anthony Blinken talked to him, uh, told him, you don't get it, do you? Ukraine is ours now, right? But that's obviously Russian being imperial, right? Um, I, I think that this is the U.S. Um, uh, desperately trying to play the expansion of U.S.-led Western global hegemony with NATO as its uh, principal uh, political and uh, military uh, foundation. Um, as as um, uh, you know, every civilization tries to um, cloak its uh, expansionism in a defensive light, and I think this is what they're doing here. A court in separatist-controlled breakaway region of eastern Ukraine has issued death sentences to two British citizens and one Moroccan national who were captured while fighting for the Ukrainian army against Russian forces, and now Britain is in an uproar. Uh, this is they're they are prisoners of war. Uh, the Geneva Convention applies. They want these gentlemen returned to their families. Mark Schlaboda, your thoughts? Yeah. Uh, so uh, these uh, two British and and one somehow Moroccan individual, um, they were uh, brought in by the U.S. backed putsch regime in Kiev uh, to kill Ukrainians. Right. That's they they were uh, here before the the Russian intervention in the conflict. Uh, they've been here since uh, in uh, eastern Ukraine since 2018. And a court of eastern Ukrainians, i.e. the Donbass Republic, has uh, charged uh, and sentenced uh, these uh, individuals, these foreign individuals as uh, for their crimes against Eastern Ukrainian citizen uh, people. That, that is, uh, you know, what has happened here. Um, and all of these claims, uh, oh, that, that, oh, they were uh, given uh, citizenship for killing Eastern Ukrainians uh, by the regime in Kiev. I don't think it's any secret that, uh, you know, the Donbass republics do not regard the regime in Kiev as legitimate. They regard that as the group of foreign Western-backed putschists that overthrew the government that they had elected to represent them in Kiev and have since perpetrated a you know, brutal war of, of ethno-political cleansing uh, and subjugation against them. Um, I think it's rather ironic to hear the British government talk about, oh, they are lawful uh, combatants and, you know, should be treated as prisoners of war uh, because they fought for the Kiev regime. Yet when British citizens who had fought uh, for, you know, alongside the people of Donbass to defend their homes, were they regarded as lawful combatants when they came back to the UK? 
Are you familiar with Benjamin Stimson? No, go ahead. Now he's he's a British citizen uh, who fought uh, on the side of the Donbass against the Kiev regime, helped the people of East Ukraine defend their homes. When he returned home, he was sentenced. He was declared a terrorist. He was sentenced as a terrorist, i.e. a non-lawful combatant and sent to prison. So I, I think it's rather ironic to hear uh, the the uh, Bojo uh, regime in the UK suddenly trying to invoke uh, the idea that these two men are somehow lawful combatants. Um, they have been sentenced to death. And, and let's be clear that this is a political sentence. Um, the Russia uh, you know, doesn't currently have uh, the capital punishment, but they aren't being tried in a Russian court. And in fact, the Russian government has said that they would not interfere in the judicial process uh, of what is happening in, in uh, uh, the, the Donbass republics. And that if the United Kingdom wanted to uh, get uh, you know, uh, work some type of uh, prisoner exchange for these people that they should speak to these republics, which is ironic, of course, because they have not spoken to them or recognized their existence for the last 10 years, not even through the Minsk Accords. Um, so um, the um, the courts there have found multiple people before sentenced them to death sentences and the sentence uh, you know, mostly uh, Ukrainians far right uh, Azov and the sentences have never been carried out right this is a political statement an act of deterrence and i am almost completely sure that eventually even if through a middleman the donbas republics will probably exchange these two british individuals for uh, some uh, some russians uh, or some other eastern ukrainians uh, who have been held and and uh, you know sentenced in sham trials by the Kiev regime. Uh, here's another article. Boris Johnson says Ukraine should not accept bad peace with Russia. It's interesting that, that Mark, that they're still acting as though Ukraine has all these options as they are being, you know, pummeled daily on the. Uh, uh, now I, I think they've uh, they've they've admitted that uh, Ukraine is losing 200 soldiers a day, but. At five to one, which is usually what you get with injuries, that would be what two hundred soldiers and a thousand, um, a thousand wounded, two hundred dead and a thousand wounded. It's a battalion a, a day. A day, yeah. So they're acting like ah, we, we we're going to stand tall. Of course, then again, Boris Johnson ain't on the battlefield in Donbass. It's easy when you're sitting back at uh, you know, partying, I guess, drinking like he always does at um, uh, you know, number 10, 10, Downing, 10 Downing, Downing Street. It's easy to talk about these poor schmucks that are standing out there catching artillery shells. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that this is Boris Johnson evoking the British imperial past. Maybe he thinks that he's Queen Victoria and <laughs> dictating to a client state how they should handle their foreign affairs, because that, that, that's that's certainly what it sounds like to me. And 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 personally, I, I think there's a lot of similarities in appearance and otherwise between Boris Johnson and, and Queen Victoria. Just take a look at the pictures. You'll, you'll understand. <laughs> um, uh, Anyway, um, yeah, um, obviously this is uh, – uh, Boris Johnson has all has said something previously very much akin to this. This is not the first time that he said this, and um, not only is he pushing 
the war here, but you know, supplying arms and and saying that they should not consider a bad peace, right? Uh, but he's he's uh, basically pushing them to continue the conflict and saying he will not allow Zelensky to surrender, and that means that that well, um, tens of thousands more. Of um, Ukrainian conscripts, because the regime has conscripted every man between the ages of 16 and 60 in the country, uh, you know, um, uh, to to fight, uh, you know, to bleed Russia um, as as much as possible, as long as possible, as long as they can keep shoveling uh, British weapons uh, into their hands. Bulgaria won't send weapons to Ukraine as Zelensky faces calls to end the war. What message does that send to you? Prime Minister Petkov confirmed that his government has no plans to send heavy weapons to Ukraine, saying that Bulgaria has done enough to help Kiev with humanitarian relief. Yeah, this is about Bulgarian domestic politics. Um, so, uh, you know, the current prime minister of Bulgaria, he leads a fragile coalition government that includes several of what are referred to as pro-Russian parties, i.e. not rapidly anti-Russian. And they are against there. There is a you know substantial portion of the Bulgarian population that, that does not see this conflict for historical and cultural reasons the same way that that most of the U.S. and Western Europe do, i.e. they are more sympathetic, uh, you know, to what is going on on the Russian side. And these parties have have basically told, uh, you know, uh, the rest of the government that uh, they would withdraw uh, and the government would collapse if they tried to send uh, weaponry uh, to the Kiev regime. So, I mean, Bulgaria is actually doing quite a lot. They mm -hmm. are helping the regime in Kiev get grain out uh, through the port of Varna. They're they're uh, getting a, a lot of uh, grain out there. They are providing humanitarian aid. They're actually fixing uh, the Kiev regime's badly maintained um, uh, Cold War era weapons that they have familiarity with uh, from the Warsaw Pact. So they're actually okay. doing the repairs on the Kiev regime's equipment. So they actually are doing quite a lot. Mark Schloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Moon of Alabama has a piece, Biden's foreign policy is one big mess. <clears throat> Last month, Biden traveled to Asia, where he had meetings with the Quad, Australia, Japan, India, and the U.S., as well as with South Asian leaders. The Quad meeting was a failure as India showed no sign of joining the other three in condemning Russia. Instead of sanctioning Russia, India is buying more oil from Russia, which offers 
decent rebates. Such disunity does not look good for a U.S.-designed anti-China coalition, and there are other elements of this analysis that we will provide. For insight into this, let's turn to our panel. It is Friday, so it's panel time. We're joined by a writer at the Polemicist.net and Counterpunch. He's the author of Ukraine Negotiation Kabuki, Dr. Jim Cavanaugh. Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by the national by the national organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. Steve, welcome back. Thank you, Wilmer. It's great to be here. Another area where current U.S. foreign policy is failing, according to Moon of Alabama, is in the Americas. Biden is currently hosting the summit of the Organization of Some American States. And the heads of states of at least seven of the 34 members of states were not invited or declined to come. Jim Cavanaugh, Biden's foreign policy is one big mess. Your thoughts, sir? Yeah, certainly is. Look, and I, I do commend and recommend to everybody one of Alabama's analysis and analyses. He's very good and uh, do, do worth and follow him. And this is a nice little pricey of what's going on in the world with the foreign policy. And Biden is, is at sea. He's at a loss and he's at sea and everybody knows it. Uh, you know, he personally is incapable of holding this up and of doing of, of projecting himself into this in some way that's going to hold it together. And the policies have no coherence. And, you know, the, uh, there's, there's a fundamental incoherence and weakness that everybody can perceive uh, that's going on with American foreign policy. We're going to isolate the biggest country in the world with the largest oil, oil production and with the huge production of essential commodities, wheat, uh, noble gases, uh, uh, essential metals, etc., we just isolate them because we feel like it. And, you know, we, that's going to hurt them. <laughs> no, it's going to hurt everybody. <laughs> and it's hurting everybody. And nobody thought through, thought, thought this through. And, you know, Latin America is kind of uh, uh, sensitive to American imperialism. So we're, we're going to have a meeting of Latin American countries, but only the ones we want to invite. No, that doesn't work for anyone. Anyway. They can't get away with that anymore. The Latin American countries aren't putting up with it. Middle East, oh, Saudi Arabia is a terrible country that Bonesaw, Prince Bonesaw, Mohammed Bonesaw, oh, no, but we're going to go now with Saudi Arabia. You know, when I, get into, when I get into office, I'm going to punish him for what he did to Akasogi. No, 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 now we're going to go with Saudi Arabia. So, you know, what are we going to do with Iran? Oh, they won't, we can't have this the nuclear deal because they're not going to accept a nuclear deal with us that's going to be you know, on, on conditions that they don't accept and that they have no guarantee it's not going to be uh, abrogated again. So nothing is going well for the United States, in this, but they're bluster. And the big, there's a big problem, first of all, in personnel. You know, Joe Biden is out of it. This is not a leadership. The entire American leadership, the top of the leadership of the foreign policy from Joe Biden down below him, you have these neocons who are running the show and nobody likes them. <laughs> and now the United States is in a quagmire in, Vietnam, in uh, <clears throat> Ukraine of a certain kind that is dangerous to the world. And they, everybody sees both economically, politically, and militarily, they don't have a plan. And uh, they don't know, they haven't thought things through, and it's extremely dangerous. Well, Jim, before I go to Steve, two points. One, I think Biden would be okay if you just keep him off of stairways. Then I, I think he's okay. But I think we're saying the same thing. This might just be a semantics conversation. I think they have a plan. But the problem is 
that the plan is based on an antiquated concept of unipolarity that the world no longer abides by. And so where the United States used to be able to say, this is what you're going to do, the world, or we will punish you, the world says, I'll just take the whipping, I'll take the licking and keep on ticking. Oh, I agree 100%. Yeah, you're okay. right. Yeah, this, that's, okay. that's right. The plan is based on the assumption of superiority that they okay. don't have any more. Everybody knows. Uh, Steve Poikin, in Biden's ideological argument that Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela are dictatorships does not make any sense when this is from the moon of Alabama. When one learns that the unelected acting president of Haiti, Ariel Henry, was invited, even though he's under suspicion of having ordered the murder of his predecessor, Jovenel Moise, Steve Poikinen. Well, in, in fairness, he's under suspicion of murdering his predecessor at the behest of the nation <laughs> that has requested his presence at the summit of the Americas. There's a little bit more to the story there. Uh, to bring it full circle, this is a, a rewarding of the puppets. This is, you know, a, a march of the satraps or client states or whatever you, you want to. The lemmings. Wanna call it. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the um, and, and it's uh, the debt colonies, if not the physical colonies, is effectively what it comes down to. Um, there is a counter summit taking place uh, across the border in Tijuana. My uh, co-host on the AM Wake Up is about to head down there to cover it. His other show, The Combo Couch, does elections and this kind of thing. So they're off to it in a couple hours. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's one of those things that just highlights the further, I get, weakening of stature. Uh, that the U.S. is going through. You know when uh, a celebrity goes from, okay, yeah, I remember that person, to I had no idea that person was still alive. <laughs> and the reason you find out is because they got involved in an altercation with a police officer and wound up screaming, don't you know who I am? And the cop was like, no, I don't, but I know you're going to jail. This is about where the United States is in our empire arc. We're about to get pulled over by a cop who just has no fear, respect, understanding, or knowledge of why they're supposed to be afraid of us. We're about there. Jim, I got to throw this at you, too. And that is, you know, the old discussion of uh, somebody who wants something so bad that they destroy it, of of the little girl that they gave her a bunny and, and, and she got it at the pet shop and she squeezed it so hard on the way home that she smothered the bunny. And it's the U.S. and the Blinkens of the world and the Rubio rules-based international order people of the world, they see the unipolarity having slipped away. And they can't believe it. And they're trying to grip it so hard that they're hastening the destruction of it, that they're like, I know, we'll, we'll Ukraine, we'll prove that we're the leaders in the world of Ukraine. And it's like, oh, man, that ain't working out well. Oh, yeah, well, Iran, wait till we tell them what to do. Iran's like, eh, forget you. Get out of here. We're like, OK, well, China and Taiwan. Taiwan recently said, yeah, we'll blast you to pieces if you try. To, I mean, China recently said, we'll blast you to pieces if you try to take Taiwan. So it's like they're trying so hard that their acts are speeding up the thing that they don't want to happen. Jim. Yeah, I'm trying to get over the poor girl with the bunny. <laughs> uh, but 
absolutely. Look, what they're doing in Ukraine, uh, you know, they could have done, had a kind of realistic, well, Obama attitude towards Ukraine. This is not crucial to us. You know, this is a situation between Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, we're not going to go. But no, we're going to win this war. We're going to make sure we're going to. So what's happening now? Well, not only is the, the, the Donbass republics uh, going to be independent, but there are other regions of Ukraine where the Russia, Russia has come in. Americans don't realize this. There are other regions of Ukraine that don't want to be part of the Kiev fascist regime. And the Russians are there now in the Kyrgyzstan region and in the uh, – can't pronounce the word. Zaporozhye? Zaporozhye, exactly. And it's going to be the same thing in Odessa. And – those people don't want to go back to Kiev, and, and they will be, they'll be dangerous for them to go back to Kiev because they'll be massacred by the, by the fascists. And the, rest, the more that the, the, the Americans pour in weapons to fight the Russians and make it longer for the Russians to win and make it more difficult, the less the Russians are going to want to give. They're going to say, yeah, we're not going to give you back to, to Ukraine. So what, the, what Russia and Ukraine have done, what the United States and Ukraine have done, have made it worse for them. Ukraine's going to be looking at losing more territory. Exactly as you say, if they had just dealt with this realistically from the beginning and, you know, uh, uh, enforced the Minsk agreements, things would have been different. But they insist on thinking they can control everything. And the, the more they insist on that, you know, they're legends in their own minds. And it's becoming clearer and clearer. Other countries in the world are saying, no, we're not going along. India's not going along with you. Uh, Mexico's not going along with you. And the more you try to assert and and bloviate and insist on your absolute superiority, the clearer it is you don't really have it. Uh, Steve, uh, we've, now we've got some leaked documents that have come out, whistleblower files, that um, regarding the infamous disinformation governance board. And we, we found out a number of things from those. But one of the things that we found out was that the DHS, they plan to work with Twitter to coordinate efforts to uh, leverage, as they say, leverage ties with social media, social media platforms to enable the removal of user content. Exactly what we've been saying all along, that these were not corporate entities that um, were, uh, uh, you know, that couldn't be held responsible for violating our First Amendment rights. This was an end around the Constitution where these people, you, the government went and said, hey, we can't shut their mouths. You do it for us. And among so many other things. At any rate, your thoughts on the whole uh, the the uh, the whistleblower and the, the the Ministry of Truth, Steve? I'm glad it's coming out so that it, it's not just us saying it and pointing to different sets of documents throughout the years. But this is this is the public-private partnership. This is what Mussolini traditionally defines as fascism: the merger of a private corporation and the state in order to direct, control, uh, hinder, uh, and steer the flow of information. There's, I, if, I, there's no separating at that point Twitter from a state entity. There's just not. So it makes the, uh, the little tags that they put on uh, uh, friends of ours, uh, colleagues of ours with the Russian state-affiliated media. Well, your entire platform is a U.S. state-affiliated social media app. The reason you exist now is to monitor and maintain the, you know, the information pipeline on your platform at the behest of the government. Jim Cavanaugh. Well, yeah, you know, again, this is, as you say, it's government, inf- government censorship. 
via proxy. It's obvious that's what, what, what's happening. It's unconstitutional. It's not okay for the government to push uh, quote-unquote so-called private institutions to do their censorship for them, and that's what's happening. And, you know, you look at these documents and the, the incoherence, again, the inconsistency that they tra- – they, do they recognize it themselves? They do not understand how obvious this is. One of the, the DHS documents here says the following – DHS should not attempt to be an all-purpose arbiter of truth in the public arena. It should instead focus its efforts on disinformation impacting DHS core missions. Then it says uh, disinformation can complicate the performance of DH core missions. What disinformation? Oh, uh, medical evidence regarding COVID. So they say we shouldn't be the arbiter of truth, but then they give themselves a mission which requires them to be the arbiter of truth about everything. And so... You know, and, and it's, they're trying to pretend it's that censorship in, in one paragraph while they define a mission which requires censorship in another paragraph. And I don't know who, you know, is it, is it really impossible? We, it's kind of epistemological crisis. Do people not recognize the contradiction in, the, in not only between what people are saying and doing, but even in what they're saying? <laughs> and uh, this is what we're at now. We're at a situation where this is not censorship, but we're going to censor. You have Republican Senators Grassley and Hawley citing or leading this charge as Republicans. Can we trust that they are actually, uh, Steve, can we trust that they are actually uh, ideologically opposed to what's going on? Or is this just a convenient political opportunity for them to seize the moment? Well, the the Republicans, when you get them in front of a congressional hearing with tech executives, they talk about who the tech executives should be censoring as opposed to who they are currently censoring. Not that they shouldn't be censoring at all, but rather who should have their platform or their voice taken away. So, no, I wouldn't trust them any further than I could throw them with an organization that was tasked with you know, rearranging reality at the behest of the current administration. We've seen over and over throughout time that when you get someone in office who even claimed, who's even running on, there are unjust things like the Patriot Act. There are unjust things like Guantanamo Bay. There are unjust things like these wars that don't make sense in the Middle East. And if elected, I fill in the blank, will stop them. And they never do. They always expand them which goes to show you that the presidency is a puppet position in the first place. But not only that, that there's a perpetuation of this type of government, governance, and of the necessity going forward for more and more controls on speech as the empire crumbles. We talked about it earlier in the show. You know, maintain tighter and tighter reins or a tighter and tighter grip uh, on that global bunny, Garland. Uh, otherwise, you know, otherwise it all falls, it all falls apart at home too quickly. And if it falls apart at home too quickly, we show up with the pitchforks and torches before the oligarchs can grab the sacks of money and get out to whatever country or underground bunker they're going to flee to. I think you got a point. And it's like this. 
the Democrats want war with Russia. The Republicans want war with China, mostly. And it's the same thing. The, 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 the Republicans just want to censor different people. That's all. They, they want to censor people the same. It's just going to be a different group. So they're mad right now because they feel like the people that they don't want censored to be censored. Same thing. Biden wants to get out more, seething that his standing is now worse than Trump's. Politico says, here's what I think is interesting. This says, when you look at this article, one of them it says, I mean, one sentence says, in crisis after crisis, the White House has found itself itself either limited or helpless in its efforts to combat the forces pummeling them. How about that sentence? The forces pummeling them. In other words, there is no responsible ability whatsoever for the Biden administration for the problems that they were having, and they're limited or helpless. Now, when they were running for office, they said, we are powerful and we shall surely fix the problems. And once they get in office, they're like, well, nothing's our fault and we don't have any power to do anything. Uh, let's start with you. You're your thoughts on the poor Biden administration who is being pummeled by circumstances far out of their control. Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, poor guys. I mean, <laughs> everybody, every, how many times you say the first day in office, I will do this. The first day in office, I will do that. And, you know, I will cut student loans and I will put in a public option and I will $15 minimum wage. And speaking as if, you know, he's going to make sure it happens. And of course, he didn't, and he can't, and he doesn't want to. And he's, he's controlled by people. He's controlled by forces that don't want those things, so he's not going to do it. But they do have another just you know, fundamental problem here, which is that Biden himself is not a leader. And this idea, what's reading through this thing that you know, people close to him saying, put him out on the road. Let Biden be Biden. That's not going to work. <laughs> you know, oh, I'm looking forward that, to that. That's, that's going to. Oh, please, that's, God, that's, let that's it happen. Yeah, I know. But he just, I can't. I mean, does his wife, do people really think that's going to work? That's not going to just blow up in their faces even worse? So this is the crisis of American leadership in general right now, somewhere from the Democratic Party point of view. Steve, but they have a plan. The West Wing believes there is still time for a course correction. Are you ready? They're going to put Biden on the road to highlight, pro- pro- highlight progress that he's made. And listen to this. We got inflation, baby food formula, mass shootings, all kind of terrible things. Check this out. This is going to fix it. It plans to sharpen its attacks on Republicans aiming to paint the GOP as out of touch with mainstream America on issues like gun safety and abortion. Man, I'll tell you one thing. When I see that five fifty a gallon for high test, if only I could had somebody to tell me how bad the Republicans were, were and how bad it would be, it would probably be five fifty one under them, I'd feel so much better. I think it's a good plan. What about you, Steve? So, Garland, you know this. <laughs> uh, at, at the the root of it, the show that I do Monday through Friday on Roxanne is a comedy show. We talk a lot about, you know, we do a lot of news. We do a lot of future news. and uh, But at the, its heart, it, it's rooted in humor. And there is nothing more that would make me happier than a <laughs> summer of unfiltered Joe Biden on the road, whistle-stop tours, put him right in front of the public, put him in front of the public that had to pay $10 a gallon in California to go drive and see him. And, and let's, let's, let's just let Joe be Joe, because historically, anytime someone confronts him, he draws himself up to his full height. He takes his finger and he puts it right in their face or in their chest, and he freaks out. 
that's exactly the kind of imagery and optics the Democrats need going into the midterms. And I'm here to cover. I really am up here for it. Come on, man. Give me a break. <laughs> so Biden and his aides, they, they've grown they've grown frustrated by their inability to turn the tide against the challenges. In crisis after crisis, they found themselves uh, limited or helpless in their efforts to combat the forces pummeling them. And the West Wing believes that there is still time for a course correction. Well, Joe Biden made a number of promises on the campaign trail. Very few, if any of them, have been have been delivered upon. I don't understand what letting Joe be Joe, who who in his uh, circle of advisors really believes that putting him out in the public is actually going to serve him well. Probably the same advisors that have been advising him. Uh, when you, What's the adage? When you find yourself in a hole, what's the first thing you're supposed to do? Stop digging. Jim Cavanaugh. Well, yeah, that's what I said. I mean, this is crazy. Let Joe be Joe, put him out on the road, let everybody see him. As Steve said, it's a great comedy tour. Uh, but it's also, you know, <laughs> to infuriate people. He goes from uh, incoherence, and then he gets mad at the people who point out his incoherence and sticks his finger in their face. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that's what's going to happen if you put him out on the road. I, I, as you say, what's, I don't know what the answer to your question is. And this is what I'm saying. We have some kind of bizarre epistemological problem here. People actually think that Joe, that, is there anybody in the White House who actually thinks that putting him out on the road is a good idea It's going to help them? Kamala Harris, she wants his job. She wants to put him out on there so she can get his job. That, that explains it. There are so many people in the White House that have fled and jumped ship over the last 18 months that the only people that are left are either the most delusional or clearly plants. <laughs> operatives from the future Buttigieg campaign going, no, 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 put him out on the road. Yeah, there we go. Well, we got a big story that we got to get on top of, though, guys. This is a big one. This is in Poland. Authorities in Warsaw have allowed citizens to forage for firewood and forests to keep their homes heated amid spiraling energy costs. Poland is in the midst of a coal shortage after banning Russian Imports. That joke just writes itself. <laughs> These guys are going to be, fo- they're going back to foraging, back to the medieval, the good old days of foraging, back when people died at 38 years of age of like a infection in their t- wisdom tooth or something. Foraging in Poland, I think that's a, gr- a very nice thing. Let's start with you, uh, Jim Cavanaugh. What do you think about foraging? But you, you can only forage twigs that have oh, that, a, that have fallen on the ground and are less than seven centimeters long. And they have to be taken to a local forester who will issue an invoice. And oh, I forgot all of this. You, in order to gather wood, you've got to uh, uh, undergo training because it's a very complicated thing to do. And then you will get a certificate. I guess it's a foraging. You get certificate. a license. You talk about neoliberalism meeting uh, these, uh, you know, starvation policies. Okay, what do you think, Jim? Hunter-gatherers. We're <laughs> <laughs> beyond the Stone Age. We're in hunter-gathering societies now, and and this is I, I, this is a dissolution and of 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 the so-called uh, globalist order in a very stark way. I mean, and again, is people not recognizing this? I mean, this. 
oh, we're going to destroy Russia with our sanctions. You just turned your society to the actually to the stage of hunter gatherers. <laughs> and Poland, Poland is is the first one. We want to eliminate all exports of Russian oil and all Russian Russian. Russian, Russian, Russian energy. Okay. <laughs> you know, punch yourself again. I mean, I just don't know what to say. This is, this is the sense in which, you know, they think they have this power over Russia, but it's only a power that's weakening them. Every time they do it, they're, you know, punching themselves in the face. And here they are at the hunter-gatherer stage. I, I, it's, it's amazing. Amazing. You know, Steve, although I understand there was other legislation that outlawed the consumption of Ukrainian refugees because they were afraid that they would have a, a Donner Pass situation kind of going on. At any, rate, at any rate, Steve, your thoughts on the hunter-gatherer situation in Poland. And I think it's going to spread. It's a very green kind of thing that's kind of good. And it's going to spread throughout Europe from the looks of things. We're chuckling, and I mean, I have a sense of humor that trends towards the macabre, but this is the darkest Monty Python sketch that anyone could ever write. It really is. Can you imagine being in the Polish government and drawing the short straw on who got to go out and sell that? All right, kids. Here's what's going to happen. You know how you're used to having heat that you didn't have to hike for? Well, here's what's going to go on from now on. Think of it as a national exercise program. This is what we're going to do. We're all going to get out together. We're all in this together. We're stronger together. And, And perhaps seven centimeters at a time, we could be warmer together. And now add, and why? As long as you have a permit. Oh, yeah. And a certificate, you're properly trained because somebody (laughs) could lose their life picking up seven centimeters of wood at a time. And they'll probably add this. And while you're out there, if you happen to run into some like nuts or berries or something you can eat, it might be a good idea to pick that up too. Provided you have a license (laughs) to gather nuts and berries. Yeah, exactly. But you have to go to a different department. And I do, I, this is like the, (laughs) this is the, the intersection of technocratic neoliberalism and Soviet era bureaucracy. The little holdover in Poland. It's really that like, they're just merging on so many magnificent <laughs> levels. I, I really, this is, we live in a cartoon. We that, you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes, as they say. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Jim Cavanaugh, to, to Steve's point, we're laughing about this because it has gone from the ridiculous to the sublime. But this is a, an indication of, of how far they're willing to go to hold on to what has obviously been lost. We've got just a minute left. Yeah, well, as I say, Poland is at the forefront, and we got to cut, it, cut ourselves off from Russia entirely. And Poland is going to, wants to get involved in this situation in, in Ukraine. So what you have is something, you know, it's kind of funny, but it's also going to lead to serious social and political unrest in these countries and throughout Europe as well, you know, economic deprivation and economic insecurity, but serious social and political unrest. And who knows where this is going? This is now something we're in another, we're in a new world. We are and the old world isn't coming back. And we have no idea how this is going to be reconfigured. Dr. Jim Cavanaugh, Steve Poikin, and gentlemen, thank you both so much. We greatly appreciate it. Enjoy your weekend. Thank you. All right. Take care, Wilmer. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. 
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Black Agenda Report has a piece entitled, For the Peoples of Our Region, the failure of Biden's Summit of the Americas would be a welcome event. It opens, the Summit of the Americas is not the property of the host nation. The U.S. has no right to exclude Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, but has done so in disregard of their sovereignty. The U.S. is not fit to judge others or to be responsible for bringing nations together. Every leader in the hemisphere should boycott boycott what has become a farcical event. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guests. And again, since it's Friday, it is panel time. We're joined by a diverse communications professional. He has a background in leading communications departments, being a communications professor and being a TV news correspondent for numerous networks domestically and internationally. Dr. Colin Campbell, as always, Colin, welcome back. Great to be here. We're also joined by an American columnist, syndicated editorial cartoonist, former war correspondent and author, Ted Rawl. Ted, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So with that open, let me start with you, Ted. This summit of some of the Americas is really proving to be a real catastrophe. Well, it's a catastrophe because of the, uh, you know, dis, the, the bad behavior of the United States, the host government here. Um, you know, it's not like the U.S. has never hosted anything international before. The U.N. is in New York. And uh, when the U.N. meets uh, members of all member, uh, you know, representatives of all member states are invited to attend, uh, even if the United States doesn't particularly like them. Uh, there's a the Iranians come, the Cubans come, uh, the Venezuelans come. They're all welcome. And therefore, and the rules here, I don't see why they would be any different. Um, this is a, uh, a conference that has a rotating host arrangement. And in this particular case, the United States is hosting an international summit. It's not their summit. They didn't call it. It's not. They're not the bosses of this. Uh, so it's not even something that should have come up. And the fact that it's a little puzzling that they've decided to take this stance, uh, it's gratifying to see that it's being opposed. Colin Campbell. You don't get any ice cream after dinner. That's kind of what this <laughs> is all about, where you have the Biden administration saying, listen, because you're not playing by our rules, we're, we want to exclude you from this summit. And I think that's really what it amounts to. The Biden administration is looking at this, uh, looking at the various countries and saying, listen, they're not falling in line with what we deem their government should be in our, uh, our guise of democracy. They are not following human rights protections. Uh, of course, the Biden administration, I think also to its defense, would be criticized to a degree. Uh, various countries are exhibiting signs of human rights abuses and the U.S. government was working with them. So here you have the Biden administration saying, look, these are the things that we want you to follow. You have not followed them. You're not following them. You're not going to get to play in our game. And this is really what the, the U.S. is trying to send to these countries that's not being excluded. But here's where it could backfire. And that is showing that because they're being excluded, this is the reason why the U.S. is looked upon as an adversary. So to various uh, groups in those respective countries that may already have a biased opinion of the United States or an unfavorable opinion of the United States, this really just emboldens that type of thinking that may be antithetical to peaceful relations with, with uh, between nations. 
Let me let me uh, ask you this, Ted, and here's the other part of it. And there's a certain level of um, contradiction for this reason. Uh, from a person who's been to Venezuela, I went there and they say Venezuela is authoritarian, but it's not. You know what I mean? I mean, you go there and the people overwhelmingly. Well, let me put it to you like this. Most of the country is brown, black, uh, his, you know, come some mix of of, of uh, Spanish and black from slaves and um, indigenous. And all of those people, which is over 70% of the country, for the most part, they support the government. The small group of white Spaniards that are left over a ruling cl- elite class that look like Juan Guaido, they are right-wingers and they support the U.S. government. So it is an ultimate democracy in that the majority rules, but they got oil. And the United States don't like the, 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 that the majority wants to keep their oil and blah, blah, blah. All that being said, after this is over, Joe Biden's heading to Saudi Arabia. But, but, but is there a contradiction there, Ted Roll? Uh, <laughs> softball question much? Uh, yeah, there's a bit of a contradiction. I mean, uh, you know, this is a, this is the he's there's a, even supposed to be uh, in the works. I don't know if it will actually occur uh, in Saudi Arabia. A scheduled handshake for the cameras uh, between the uh, you know Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman who ordered the uh, murder of Jamal Khashoggi at the uh, at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, um, and uh, and and President Biden. And so, uh, you know, that's going to be probably the most amazing photograph since uh, Elvis Presley met Nixon at the White House. Uh, It's just going to be so gross to see. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, it's I mean, obviously, uh, there's going to be there's there's some normalization of relations uh, or softening of uh, detente uh, between Venezuela and the United States because the U.S. is sucking up to all the non-Russia producing oil, oil producing states to try to make up for uh, the, the loss of uh, uh, oil, uh, Russian supplied energy. But there's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bad, the whole thing is a bad look all around. And the United States has no real right to pick and choose who gets to attend this summit. They just don't. If I may ask you, Colin, one one other question, and, and here's my thoughts. I've said like this. If I was the president of the U.S., if we need wheat from a country, we buy wheat from them. If we need flour from them, we buy flour from them. I believe in sovereignty. I may not even like what's going on in your country. I don't personally think that we should say to Saudi Arabia, we won't do this or that because of what's going on, because I believe in sovereignty. I think a country has to look out for their own needs, do what they can to keep prices down and keep your economy strong. And if some other countries do doing something they shouldn't be doing. It's not our job to intervene around the world as the moral police. It, it, it just reminds me of like the crusades of the medieval times. And I believe in sovereignty. Anyway, Colin, what are your well, thoughts? Wait, on well, wait a minute, Garland. Joe Biden believes in sovereignty because he says it in just about every speech that he gives. He says, we support sovereignty. We believe in democracy and we believe in people's rights to govern themselves. He says that all the time. He says it. Okay, well, uh, go ahead, Colin. Anyway, Colin, maybe. I don't know. Your thoughts, Colin? Well, you, well, I was going to say, what else does he believe that maybe he does not always say? And that is the ideology behind American exceptionalism. When you look at how that works and just the ways that the U.S., uh, many officials in the U.S. believe that they are above reproach when it comes to their relations with other nations across the globe, when it comes to the machinations of how they view other democracies or governments should work, then you start to see how they operate. We've seen this with the creation of the United States, for example, right? The genocide that happened to Native Americans, the enslaved 
um, Africans bringing them over and feeling that this was their God-given right to operate this way, despite how we know uh, history has actually been uh, revealed to us. And so when you think about this, uh, this ideology that puts America above the rest, and it is a, almost like a divine placement to be there, you start to see how the, that same ideology trickles down into politics, regardless of Republican or Democrat. And you, again, this is one of those situations where you see the president saying, listen, you need to play by our rules. Yes, we are a sovereign nation. If any country were to invade us, if any country were to say, hey, you're engaging in civil rights abuses with mass incarceration and police shootings and all of that, and if you tried to interfere with our country, you would face a strong rebuke. But if you do it in your country, we, you're going to have to answer to us, or we're not going to play ball with you, or we're going to try to force you, coerce you, or at the very least, cajole you into our way of thinking, our way of how we think we should be doing business with you, our way of politicking. And that's what you're seeing the Biden administration trying to play into right now, as far as being malleable is, because he has to address the situation of rising prices. But he realizes that because of human rights abuses and the allegations and what has been revealed from out of uh, Saudi Arabia, which has been criticized for a long time for civil rights and uh, human rights abuses, he still has to work with that. So how does he balance that out? He is in a tough position, regardless of whether or not you agree with his approach, he is in a very tough position. He's got to get his poll numbers up for the sake of his own presidency, for the sake of his party, but he also, in a way, has to kiss up to people he views as adversarial and on the wrong side of human rights protections in order to help ameliorate problems that he's facing domestically. Only thing I'll say to that, Colin, is that he's in a tough position because he's put himself in a tough position, uh, in my opinion. And also what you just talked about was this whole focus by the United States on the rules-based order at which Blinken and Biden love to talk about, as opposed to adhering to, to international law. Ted, I'll let you and both you and Colin respond to that. But I wanted to read, in terms of Nicaragua, this is what Joe Biden had to say uh, last year after the Nicaraguan election. He says, with Nicaraguan President Ortega and his wife, uh, uh, Rosario Murillo, orchestrated today was a pantomime election that was neither free nor fair and most certainly not democratic. He called it a sham. He said Ortega's regime rigged the outcome well before Election Day by imprisoning 39 opposition figures, including seven would-be presidential challengers. That's just one example of what he said about Nicaragua. We know what he has said about Venezuela, about their election, about Maduro being a dictator and an autocrat. And even though all international election observers, including former President Jimmy Carter, have found that not only are Venezuela's elections free and fair, Carter said he wishes the United States elections were as good as those in Venezuela. So do I. And in terms of the Nicar and in terms of what Ortega did in, in this arresting of 39 opposition figures, those individuals broke Nicaraguan law. Because as I understand it, it's illegal in Nicaragua for a presidential campaign or a political campaign to receive outside 
fund, funding from outside the country as it is illegal in this country. So, Ted Rawl, uh, the things that he's just lying and he is cherry picking information, trying to construct a narrative that reality just does not support. Ted Rawl. Well, yeah, that's right. And there's nothing new there. Uh, you know, I mean, the current uh, situation, sort of the roots of it go back to Jimmy Carter, uh, who was really the first president sort of after the Church Commission and all that, uh, all the CIA, uh, the news about the CIA coups in uh, Chile and and, uh, and other shenanigans uh, with authoritarian regimes in Latin America in the 60s uh, came out. Uh, Jimmy Carter kind of had some moral standing to say that the United States should base its foreign policy in part based on human rights concerns. Obviously, he had some hypocritical dealings like admitting the Shah of Iran to the United States. But Jimmy Carter had more moral standing than certainly his uh, his successors. And uh, and so we kind of have this famushed um, uh, you know, human rights policy that kind of really never made sense. It was only ever going to work uh, based on two predicates. One, the United States runs the world and in a unipolar way, and you kind of have that sort of, um, or at least you did have that, and not not so much anymore. Uh, but it also required the United States to behave impeccably and not to prop up or support authoritarian or violent or human rights violating regimes around the world. Uh, and that's something that the United States has never been able to, or willing to do. And so, uh, you know, as you've seen, uh, sort of the, uh, the, 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 chi the child of Carter's uh, foreign policy, um, you know, based on human rights co come through, it just ne it necessitates hypocrisy on the part of the United States because it, it cannot possibly live up to the standards uh, that it says it's in favor of, which means that it ends up arbitrarily uh, picking and choosing, you know, regimes that it's going to pick on and then uh, turn a blind eye to, you know, the, uh, the human rights offenses in places like Saudi Arabia and elsewhere that, that are on good terms with the U.S. In essence, nothing's really ever changed since the battle days of the CIA uh, toppling uh, democratic regimes in the 50s and 60s. It's still the same. But they have to kind of pretend, and it's kind of embarrassing. Colin Campbell. Whenever you have a country that is looking at the United States, there's always some criticism that they can have for how we operate, despite the way that we judge other countries based on how they govern themselves. What I mean by this is, if you look at just the last few years when we are revising, addressing, uh, recounting, uh, going over our voting rights policies in the United States. There are many people who could look at the United States from other countries and say, hey, you might criticize us for our form of democracy, but what are you doing in within your borders? Is everyone given the right to vote? Is everyone given access, the, uh, given access to voting? How is that looking? And this is happening at the same time when voter, uh, voter and ballot uh, Stations are being closed when um, mail-in mail voting is being questioned and being severely limited. Uh, when we have some of the lowest uh, voting numbers in recent memory, yeah, there, there has been some uptick in, in a year or two. But when you look at the trend, and, and especially in the past, uh, when the United States, uh, many years ago, we have less people voting today. And that's always going to be a problem with the U.S., is 
criticizing other countries, but then not really addressing those same deficits and disparities that they themselves are engaged in within their own country. Let me, there's another story, and I'm going to connect this this to what we're talking about now. And it's, it's a, Russia's role in the global economic order has turned out to be more significant than the West, than the West believed. So we know what's happened. The U.S. and Europe uh, said, okay, we're going to put all these sanctions on Russia, but they backfired really badly. And um, the price of energy has gone up dramatically and a number of things because Russia is a, you know, huge supplier of commodities. I say all that to say this. We're talking about the U.S., Looking at other countries and judging their their um, voting, their human rights, their how their government works is it authoritarian? Is it about blah blah blah? And I think a lot of America with Joe Joe number Joe um, uh, Joe Biden's numbers are plunging, and I think there's a lot of this going on now. We got problem as 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 that great philosopher Flavor Flav in Public Enemy said, "I can't do nothing for you, man. I'm too busy trying to do for me." Americans are saying we got mass shootings, we got gas through the roof, inflation. Hold on a minute. What are we doing looking all over the world, judging people, talk about other people's problems? We got to fix everything. I think people are furious at the Biden administration, at our government saying you just sent $40 billion over there. We don't have baby food formula. The issue, and I know you see what I'm getting at. I'll start with you, Colin. That's right. You were just there. I'll start with you, Ted. The issue is people are saying, man, when is our government going to start paying attention to the problems of Americans at home? And I think that's going to cost the Democrats, not that the Republicans are any better, but it's going to cost them in the midterms in a biblical manner. Uh, Ted, we'll start with you. I think it's going to cost them in the general in the presidential election uh, two years from now as well. Um, you know, the Republicans have the perfect branding right now to, to respond <clears throat> to this concern. And that is America first. Um, you know, it's it, it has a, a foul past, obviously. Um, it's it's a nativist. But you know, it's it's something that like a lot of people and not just on the right can relate to. You know, why is why do we have people sleeping on the streets here in the United States when when, you know, at the same time that Congress can apparently appropriate 40 billion dollars for Ukraine in like five seconds? Um, you know, somehow we can't like take care of our own people, uh, but we can take care. You know, we can get involved in this in this thing, in this thing that doesn't even involve a U.S. ally. So. Uh, I think it's 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 going to be I think it's it's going to be brutal for Democrats uh, and it's you know it's a, it's going to be they're going to pay a price there's no question about it um, and add another that I add this to Colin and God knows this is going to happen before November and it is not going to be a good move Congress ramps up efforts to increase 813 billion dollar military budget for 2023 they got 813 and Congress is saying that's not enough the, after this 40 billion dollars with the problems we have now I think Americans are getting infuriated that the government's not dealing with policies at home this is bad politics and it's bad for the country. Colin, your thoughts? Colin, you know, I always knew you were a cool guy, but your cool factor just went up, quoting Flavor Flav from Can't Do Nothing <laughs> For You, Man, from uh, the Fear of a Black Planet album, 1990. I have very fond days of listening to that album over and over again. Uh, another quote that probably has come up recently as well as 911 is a joke for Flavor Flav, especially after what happened in Uvalde, Texas. We have to remember that. We had students calling for 911 and, and there was no help. Um, and then they were eventually killed. But, you know, 
this uh that those those quotes from that album actually have been going through my mind the past few days and when you look at the comparison to what's happening in america right now you see the frustration you hear the frustration coming out uh from the american public i did a story recently for another uh for another news agency and just talked about the problems with gun violence and some and talking about how they're looking at ways to manage bump stocks and ban high capacity magazines. Somebody left a comment on my page and said, yeah, okay, that's great and all, but let the president know that we're also facing high gas prices, mortgages going up, our food prices are going up, and there's a problem with mental health in our country as well. These issues are really at the core of what Americans are looking to the president and the administration to take care of. And there's some some serious frustration over that. As we look at the price of inflation, economists are saying we are on the cusp of a recession as well. Uh, there's some serious problems going on right now for America, and it's reflected in the president's approval ratings, which are hovering at about 40%. I don't think they've risen above 45% since last year and August sometime when Congress is out. <laughs> Maybe that has something to do with it. Uh, but this is a serious problem for the Biden administration. Just looking at the core interests of Americans, what matters most to them, and a lot of them are saying that Ukraine and, and Russia, as dismal as it is, the amount of killing that's going on, people losing their lives, uh, you know, for them, it's pocketbook issues. You know, being able to pay for their groceries, being able to pay for a roof over their head, being able to pay for an, an, an inelastic good like medication so that they continue their day-to-day -day activities. This is really what Americans are waking up or going to bed at night worried about. You know, it's interesting, Colin, that you mentioned Joe Biden's approval ratings, which the last time I saw, I think were 39 percent because uh, he complains about President Xi from China being an authoritarian uh, independent U.S. based surveys have showed that Xi's approval ratings in China are close to 90 percent. Uh, we tried to overthrow al-Assad in Syria. He was reelected last year. Over 90 percent turnout. 86% of the vote. Uh, Maduro, close to, uh, what, 80% approval rating in Venezuela. The economy in Russia is thriving, and Putin has like 84 or 85% approval rating. So all of these people that we claim to be authoritarian and hateful warmongers and evil people, they're well-liked in their countries. Uh, Ted Rawl. They are, or they seem, they seem to be, they seem to be. I do wonder if President Trump was still president today and he had some bad approval numbers, if those would be incorporated in the reported poll numbers. I do have to wonder about that because we did have a president who wanted to kick news crews out of the White House because they were reporting unfavorable news. I can only imagine that that might affect poll numbers as well. But that's just my thought. Well, to that point, Caitlin Johnstone has a piece in Consortium News, Ted Rawl, Silicon Valley taking control of history. The idea that government-tied corporations should act as arbiters of history and accuracy is steadily gaining acceptance in the echo chamber of mainstream public opinion. So not only, Ted Rawl, are they stifling contrary narratives to the mainstream narrative, now they want to get involved in being the arbiters of history. Well, uh, you know, as uh, George Orwell wrote in 1984, 
he who controls the past controls the future. And uh, that is uh, obviously something that is terrifying. Um, you know, I guess we do live in a country that, <laughs> to, for whatever benefit, this might be one of the few times that the fact that Americans are incredibly ahistorical might be to a, to a benefit. But, um, you know, we, are, we already have too much of that going on as it is, for example, uh, films that, uh, that, that purport to uh, be historical reenactments, which end up changing history, and those end up being the history that most Americans are aware of and, and remember and kind of codify. So, no, it's, it's terrifying. I mean, look, tech, big tech needs to be reined in, and it's tough because who's going to do it, right? I mean, you can't really trust the government. Uh, big tech is censoring. Big tech is, uh, is, is, is changing the past, is curtailing free speech, is censoring voices, even a sitting president of the United States. Uh, but then, you know, well, we don't want that to happen, but we don't want to censor them and just have a different form of censorship. So, you know, what we need is really a public outcry in favor of free speech, or we just need, uh, you know, I don't know, I'm, I don't really trust the marketplace to just generate a, comp a competitor to say Twitter and Facebook, but because uh, that's not likely to happen anytime soon. But yeah, it's, it, this is one of those problems where it's just like, oh my God, this is really bad. And I don't see it getting better. You know, Colin, before you respond, in, in Ted mentioning uh, American films and their impact on re revisionist history, that just made me think about the first f film in this country that is considered to be the creation of the of the genre of film in this country was Birth of a Nation, 1915 W.D. Griffith film originally titled The Klansman. And so the whole basis of genre of film in America is based on one of those revisionist films. I just thought I'd throw that out there. Uh, since you say Garland is hip, because uh, I just figured I'd throw that in there too. Go ahead, go ahead, Colin. Well, you're you're always you're always hip, Wilbur. You're always hip. Uh, I, how much time do we have to talk about this? I mean, this, you got two this minutes. Is issue that actually two minutes. Okay, I'll try to squeeze as much in as I can. As two minutes, issue. Dougie Fresh. By you're on. Chese. You're on. <laughs> you're on. Uh, uh, so yeah, this is uh, in in layman's terms when we are dealing with uh, editing, especially in linear and nonlinear editing, we say crap in, crap out. What that means is if you start with, with rubbish, something that is not clear, not concise, you're going to get that in the end, no matter how much you try to dress it up. The same thing is happening with text. My research looked at how different narratives were built and how they were stored on the internet, and then how artificial intelligence takes those narratives and then develops new content out of already existing content. What I found was that the content that was finally, that was finally rendered was something that was very obfuscating, it wasn't very accurate, and it didn't really talk about the issues in their, in their fulsomeness as they should have been. And so I think that there does need to be some type of, uh, I, don't, I wouldn't say a board, but there does need oversight. Um, there, to be applied to uh, developing technology, especially when we're looking at artificial intelligence and the way that history would be monitored or current events would be reported. There would need to be some uh, definite human interest, but it would need to be deliberative. Can't just be anyone. And it would have to be several people so that different narratives or biases can be addressed. Otherwise, you're going to have skewed news, which was talked to me 
from K through 12, where I really didn't know much about anything except uh, a skewed version of American history. And Ted, and if I could say this, and I think one of the issues that people have is that what we're the, the 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 content control that we're getting now is by nefarious sources. We want transparency. Okay, if you're going to say, you know, there's bad news on Twitter, therefore Twitter has to do certain things. Tell us what the algorithms are. Make it clear what people are. Who who is on the panels? Who makes the decision? All of that kind of stuff. And we keep finding out that there's murky figures that are almost always connected to some intelligence agency that are involved with this. Ted, And so people don't trust it. Ted. One minute, Ted. Yeah, that's right. There's uh, there was that that thing. The uh, what was that thing called? Um, the Integrity a, Initiative. The sh- yeah, yeah. There was a, and there was something called something like Shield or something like that, where it turned out also to be a bunch of shadowy former NSA CIA guys. Um, yeah, I mean that's the whole thing. You you can't. Tr- you have to be uh, you know double triple check the sources. Most people don't have time to do that. I mean disinformation is rampant. It it's part of the system. Uh, I don't see it going away anytime soon. It's just. The only thing you can do is just listen to a whole lot of different sources, read a lot of different sources, and hope that you, the truth filters through somehow. Ted Rawl, Dr. Colin Campbell, gentlemen, thank you both so much for your analysis and your time today. Greatly appreciate it, as always. Please enjoy your weekends, and we look forward to having you guys back. Thank you. Looking forward to coming back. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here next week on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. <laughs>